Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. And welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating some of our favourite video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Um... And my adulthood <laughs> friend, Nancy <laughs> Bree. You know me, I like short names the best. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into the episode proper, we just want to issue you the usual couplet of reminders. Firstly, do please check out our YouTube channel, which we are populating with some cracking video content, such as the Hard Drop mini-series Chris is making, looking at the history of Tetris-alike games. And we're also uploading streaming content as well, like the superb video of Chris tackling the super world I made in Super Mario Maker 2, and our co-op run through Streets of Rage 4. And we, all three of us, are now in possession of proper capture cards so we're going to have a lot more streaming content going up there very very soon so do subscribe to the channel and if you are enjoying what we're doing on there then please do share it on social media too and get some more subscribers in for us we'd appreciate that massively drag them in we also have a patreon page where you can get lots of cracking extra content from us in exchange for a few pennies of your pleasury so if you're interested in supporting the podcast and getting more stuff from our brains then head over to patreon.com forward slash our three cents and please pledge away so this week we are going into the 30s Mm. no we've done the 30s aren't we we're about to exit the 30s yeah that's a very good point (laughs) god it's weird when you're counting up (laughs) so this week we have our number 30s we are exiting the 30s, guys. How does that feel? It feels unreal. It's like we're aging backwards. It is. Very soon we'll just be swimming around in people's balls. Like Benjamin Butthole. Yeah. But before we dive into video games, we're going to dive into Quizio games with the return of... The quiz. The quiz. The score currently stands at 36 points to Chris and 33 points to Minty. Oh, imagine if I could get back to even footing. Okay, here we go. In Street Fighter 2, how many buttons were used to control your character? Chris is straight in there with an answer of six, which is the correct answer. Uh. (laughs) You have a low, medium and high kick and a low, medium and high punch. Yeah, I'll cut that down. <laughs> uh, well done, Chris. You've you've uh, accrued a four point lead once more. But never fear, Minty. Not only are there twenty nine questions still to come, which means you could win by twenty five clear points. <laughs> I also st- will still hold true to my original promise that I will do a massive final quiz showdown to finish it all off which will almost certainly be guaranteed to uh, to to engineer enough points to to make it exciting right at the very end so never fear it should be game show format we should uh, we should do it as a video 100% i will get buzzers and everything i can't wait hopefully we won't be in lockdown in 29 weeks time and uh, and we can do it do it in person otherwise we'll find a way to do it remotely mm. if a second wave happens let's hope not let's let's <laughs> hope not so what have we been playing this week minty what have you played this week oh good question thanks for asking it's all in the way i ask it to be honest yeah yeah so recently because i'm waiting for paper mario and the origami king to arrive in a couple of days 
I've been playing a game that I'm not going to talk about today because it will be coming up in a couple of weeks. Ah, Ooh, interesting. Very However, good. However, by the time this episode goes out, I too will have tackled Super Oath Nan J World. Ah, um, excellent. Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm go- I think I've got all the I've got all the hardware set up now. So I think tomorrow I'm going to sit down and just blast through it. Fantastic. I cannot wait to see how your attempts measure up against Chris. You you have to remember, though, that Minty could have watched me. (laughs) So he has a a minor advantage. Let's not forget who playtested the entire game (laughs) before the... not forget that <laughs> well here's the thing i was gonna be- before you lent me your copy i was gonna like try and find it second hand and play through it oh. myself so i haven't actually watched any of it oh so it's fresh oh. okay yeah well, then so i'm going in blind you've got your mario smarts only yeah excellent i cannot wait to see that all i, all I know is what each button does and even then i'm a little bit ropey <laughs> chris what have you played this week uh i've played a couple things this week tell us what they are <laughs> i'm about a third of the way through american mcgee's alice madness returns ah yes. which i know i mentioned to you guys but but not on this show i've been playing it on the 360 with my partner georgia uh, because we we recently moved in together and and when we were unpacking our things we found that we both had a copy of this game even though it's quite a niche release yeah mine was naturally sealed and unplayed as of most course. of my games are <laughs> uh, but but georgia's was was played and she said oh it's fun it's, it's worth a go and we've been kind of chipping away at that in the evenings like, I, ne- I never played the original Alice on the PC, mm. but I think this sequel holds up surprisingly well, despite the fact it's now about, it's got to be a decade old or so. Probably, yeah. And it's, it's not a million miles away from like a 3D Zelda game mm. in, in execution. So it's like the, the combat is, you know, it's got like a Z targeting system, essentially like, like Ocarina of Time and everything afterwards. Certain enemies are weak to certain attacks. You've got patterns of behavior you need to suss out and, and take people down and whatever. In terms of its look, it's, it's all a bit gothic and, and that sort of grim, dark thing. But I, th- I think the art direction is actually quite nice. And, and despite its age, it, it looks pretty solid because it went with that sort of stylized look at the time. Mm. Like we, we've talked about it on this show before, things like The Last of Us 2, like you, you look at screenshots or video footage of it now and it looks incredible, but it won't in a decade because anything that's photorealistic always will, will age because visuals always advance in that area. Yeah. Whereas if something is stylized, it's, it's you know, if it's good enough at the time, it, it is almost timeless at that stage. Yeah, exactly. It's why, yeah, Wind Waker will always be stunning. Yeah, it, it'll always look great. And then a lot of Nintendo stuff will, will hold up because it's never been about kind of like chasing super fidelity. Did you know that American McGee originated his career as a level designer for doom i only know that because i looked him up recently when we started playing this game but i i never realized (laughs) prior like i'd seen his name attached to a few games i think he did one called like scrapland as well okay no idea if it's any good but i've seen the box it was on the original xbox but yeah no that's where you got your start isn't it the other game I've been playing, there was a recent Namco collection that's come out on the Switch, mm. and it compiles like various uh, NES and Famicom titles together. And although I have access to basically all of that via emulation, I picked the first volume up because it's the first time some of these games have been translated into English and released in the West, and I, I kind of like supporting that stuff when it happens. But also because it includes an 8-bit demake, I suppose you'd call it, of Pac-Man Championship Edition. Okay. Which, if, if you've ever played it, is, is one of the very best modern arcade games, I think. You know, it didn't come out in the arcades, but it's definitely that sort of score-chasing thing. Yeah. And it's just really, really fun. Like, it, it uses the core sort of Pac-Man formula, but it's just much faster, much more kind of intense. 
and you're basically just chasing ghosts as you normally would do around mazes to collect lines of pellets and everything else but with like a really intense like visual style to it despite the fact this is being rendered on nes hardware Mm. and the collection is about 15 quid i think and i think this game alone is worth the cost of entry like it is really really good that stands up you know as a modern title now and the whole collection was put together by m2 Oh, uh, so you know everything yeah. is runs well and i'm pretty sure that this iteration of, of pac-man was made by them exclusively for this release oh wow fantastic and in, in, incredibly i saw on youtube the other day that people have already like hacked their switches and extracted the rom and it runs flawlessly on proper hardware if you if you put it on a flash card and put it in the nes yeah so they they have actually like followed the proper hardware limitations to make this new game work on on an old machine brilliant and it's, it's just really good and in in the words of minty i'm i'm having a nice time with it good good good, good. <laughs> just just funny, it's funny you say that the pac-man is worth the price alone because pac-man championship edition 2 on the switch eShop costs more than the entire the namco museum archives collection well there you go i think it's better value pick it up Give it a go. Just play play a bit of Pac-Man. It's good. I'll tell you what I've been playing this week. Go on then. The big news of the week is that I finished The Last of Us, the original first Last of Us, and it was great. It was uh, a <laughs> yeah, great, great, great story, really compelling all the way to the end. Definitely made me want to dive straight into part two to find out sort of, you know, how the story develops. I, I mean, I spoke about it last week, the niggle I sort of have with the game comes down to it being this like cinematic experience first and foremost and a video game second and that restrictive gameplay and few too many quick time moments as well it really makes me wonder why the story was made as a video game and not in another medium because it feels like it's deliberately removing a lot of things that video games offer a story in order to tell it how they wanted yeah like especially as there there aren't any narrative consequences to your actions in the game either so it's not even like there is any story interaction either it's it's just physical actions you know it, it puts you in the driving seat to watch a story unfold so i wonder why it needed to be a video game like, I know that there's a Netflix series being developed and th- they won't have to change anything from the game at all to make it work. It is just it is just watching, you know, a, a story. I was, I was chatting with my friend Steve about this because he's a big fan of the game and he said he had similar thoughts to me about it. But one of the things he said was that like, movies are, I mean, purely passive, you know, and you're watching other people react to their circumstances which you then react to but the thing that like the last of us does is it gives you the illusion of control yeah even though you don't have any like i said any consequential input to anything that's happening but it gives you this illusion that that then heightens the experience because you're by proxy reacting to the situation yourself through your character like in say a dungeons and dragons game controlled by a dungeon master Mm. or like a really really nice illustration of it is if you think of it like a roller coaster you're going along a predetermined path with numerous safety precautions (laughs) but your heart still races with each dip and each turn and i think that is that describes kind of what the last of us is like and i don't know whether or not that justifies it being a video game and I don't know whether or not it justifies being called the greatest video game of all time or an amazing video game because I don't think it is. I think it's a really yeah. well-made game and I think it's a f- 
absolutely fantastic story and really compelling storytelling but yeah i i just yeah i think i think it's a really interesting discussion point because clearly it's where a lot of modern games are going like i had a, had a similar concern because actually i started playing the recent uh god of war game like the reboot from a couple of years ago yeah and and i thought i thought like the opening sort of 10 minutes it was shaping up to be a similar sort of restrictive experience but then as you sort of get into the game sort of through that sort of opening sort of tutorial stuff it is like properly like open world and you do have a lot more flexibility over how you control it and, and, and also most importantly with that game your character opens treasure chests by punching through the top of them so <laughs> there is that <laughs> with The Last of Us I, I read something online where someone was annoyed at the sequel because of the way that again it follows that pattern of saying okay we're going to force you to say like kill a person mm. and then we're going to force you to feel sad about it Yeah, and that's obviously not the same as if you've chosen to do something if you if you've chosen to undertake some sort of action because then you have that consequence because it's a a player choice like you've had agency over it yeah and and in a lot of these cinematic games you don't so even if it's playing sad music in the background and your character's got a little tear in their eye yeah it doesn't necessarily mean anything for you because it's like well it was a a single choice there wasn't anything else i could do to progress this game and often it's really cheapened by like in the middle of that drama you have to hammer the triangle button as quickly as you can (laughs) it's like it it feels almost then like i don't know just a bit crass yeah and it's it's strange and like i said it, it doesn't it didn't stop me from really enjoying it and having a great time seeing the story but i don't know i think it's i think it's an interesting an interesting point and like from what I've seen of, of reviews of part two, they said that it really sort of pushes the cinematic gameplay further. And I don't know what that means. And I, But I'm really, really up for finding out. Yeah. I think people are forgetting that games are meant to be played. Exactly. Not just watched. Yeah. Exactly. I think that is, that is it. And yeah, I think certainly if anybody has any opinions about this stuff, please do... Uh, please do get in get in touch and let us know what you think because I think it is a really interesting discussion point. But I also started playing a few new games, God of War being one of them, but I've, I've literally only just started that. But there was one game that I started and finished because it's uh, it's, it's quite short. It's called Super Liminal. On the, on, I got it on the Nintendo eShop on the Switch and it's a first-person puzzle game. A lot of it seems quite similar in setup to something like Portal. You're basically in a testing facility being observed by an unseen person who feeds into your story through occasional voiceover. But instead of playing with the idea of teleportation, this game is basically playing with the illusion of perspective. And it is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, I remember the first time I saw the trailer for the first Portal game, and my mind just keeled over, because I never (laughs) thought of that mechanic existing, and the possibilities of the concept were just so huge and so exciting. And it was exactly the same here, once I realised what they were doing, playing with, like, forced perspective and optical illusions. Like, to give you an example, if you pick up an object and move around with it, when you place it down, it will scale to the size as you had seen it on a 2D plane. That's cool, yeah. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. So if you picked up an apple from a table, it appears apple-sized in front of you. Then if you look up at the ceiling and let go of it, it will be the same size, but it's far away. So it's actually bigger. And as it falls to the ground, you realise it's now absolutely enormous. And like just as you start getting used to one type of puzzle, one type of manipulation, it changes things up again and again and again in increasingly mind-bending and innovative ways. And the game ends with an incredibly 
surprising and poignant message that is genuinely like genuinely quite moving and really made me like think back over everything I'd done in the game. Really fantastic. Really fantastic. It's apparently it's available on lots of platforms, not just the Switch, and it's it's only about a tenner. And it's yeah, brilliant experience. I I'd I'd highly recommend it. Very, very clever game design. Very clever. I won't take up any more time here, but I have also started playing Dandy Dungeon on your recommendation, Chris. I like that game. And I've also started <laughs> playing The Legend of Bumbo, the latest Ed McMillan game, which is Ooh. like a sort of pseudo prequel to Binding of Isaac. I'm playing it on Steam and it is uh. very, very good. And I've also started playing Persona 4 on my Vita as well. So Calm down, I've mate. got lots going on. <laughs> I know, I've got loads going on. So yeah, stay tuned for thoughts and opinions on those in the coming weeks. For now, though, shall we move on to the rankings? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's fire into number 30. Number 30. Number 30. Starting this week, we have Minty. Minty, can you please tell us about your 30th favourite video game of all time? Yes. Well, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think things need to be a lot more surreal in all forms of media. Everything just needs a touch of uh, kind of strange dreamlike beauty. There are no rules. There are no limitations on what can be achieved or conceived. I probably talked about this in relation to theatre, considering everything is hell-bent on being gritty and real. Like, fuck off and get weird with it, you know? (laughs) You can still hit all the emotional and narrative beats and have room for things that are still quite fantastical. We're having a really shit time at the bank at the moment, so every week I'm sitting there choking down a horrible coffee with my soul slowly dropping out of my arse, trying not to have a fucking conniption whilst watching my wife being subjected to (laughs) systemic xenophobia. This is real life and it's shit. Give us... Beautiful, dreamy things to escape to. Self-insert fantasy epics, leaping tall buildings, a punch that can dent a paving slab. Like, talking animals that run shops and museums. Give us more of that. I don't have a lot of outlets at the moment, so thanks for letting me get that off my chest. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about a Game Boy game. Yeah, I got a Game Boy Pocket for my birthday when I was about seven, with a few second-hand games, which were, you know, mostly things like uh, arcade ports, Super Mario Land, Tetris, those sort of... Jurassic Park, yeah. Yeah, those simplistic (laughs) games to use replayability to get around the limitations of the hardware. And Link's Awakening. (gasps) Hello. Oh boy. Link's Awakening. <laughs> Jonathan's heart has just stopped on this one. <laughs> Widely and, if I'm being honest, wrongly lauded as the best Zelda game, this is a weird and sad game that has a shipwrecked Link trying to escape Koholint Island, which doesn't actually exist. It's just the dream of a celestial whale that's asleep in a massive egg at the top of the mountain. You need to gather eight instruments to wake him up and kill the evil creatures that are keeping him asleep, blah, 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 blah. That's the story out of the way. (laughs) It's a Zelda game. It's not a series known for really shaking things up in that department. But the real beauty of Link's Awakening lies in the liminality. The dungeons and bosses are a means to an end. But in between those conventional stages, there's all sorts of uh, weird stuff going down. So much weird stuff. It's a dream, after all. It's a dream. Your new friend that finds you on the beach, uh, her dad turns into a raccoon after eating a mushroom. You end up with a can of dog food and you need to trade that with the crocodile that lives on the beach for a bunch of bananas. There's there's a chasm in the mountains that can't be crossed, so you've got to do what anybody would do and play a song that you learned from a massive toad to resurrect the famous flying rooster and grab on as it flies over to progress. Like, basic stuff. (laughs) A ghost starts following you about halfway through the game and you need to take it to its old home to exercise it. 
there's a sleeping walrus blocking the path to the desert and your friend sings a song that can wake anything up so you have to take her over to the animal village to sort him out boss of the sixth dungeon is the floor (laughs) (laughs) with a very sensitive nose yeah the second dungeon is blocked by flowers you need to rescue a chain chomp from an entirely different franchise mind you to gobble them up Mm. let's not forget the fact that you could win a yoshi doll in a crane game yeah yes you yeah. can and one of the islanders is writing a love letter to princess peach mm-hmm. and aren't there there's goombas aren't there in the 2d sections there are goombas in the 2d sections and piranha plants mm-hmm. and in the seventh dungeon uh, there's also kirby yeah totally weird all of these weird little things that flavoured the game were just enrapturing to, to younger me, particularly the enigmatic bucket mouse on the other end of Grandpa Ulrich's phone. <laughs> Who was that? Tell us your secrets, the bucket mouse. Of course, I researched this after playing the 2019 oh, Switch yeah. remake and got incredibly upset that it was just a mistranslation of a real-life fish shop or something like that. <laughs> so... Yeah, aside from that pointed reminder that learning things is profoundly disillusioning, the gentle sprinkling of weirdness in Link's Awakening makes it one of the most engaging games that I've ever played. A real achievement for that little uh, the little Game Boy, but wowie. Big things in small packages. Oh yeah, absolutely. It. Yeah, it's, it's, It is mad to think that they went from A Link to the Past to Link's Awakening... It's just the sheer ambition of making something as big and sprawling as A Link to the Past and then going, we could do something like this on the Game Boy. Mm. It's it's absurd. It's absurd. And But they do. Like, I mean, what you said at the beginning, Minty, about getting like arcade ports and Super Mario Land, the the jump to something like Link's Awakening is is insane for the hardware. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's absolutely insane. And and I think they were fully aware of that as well. Like, you know, the, Nintendo designed the hardware to be cheap. It was using ancient tech. It was using stuff that wasn't going to be expensive to run, wouldn't eat batteries like things like the Game Gear would go on to do. And and yet this game out of nowhere had such grand vision yeah. compared to, you know, early ports of Alleyway and, and stuff like that. It's it's, <laughs> it's, game, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely... I mean, they're, they are good games. Like, those sort of um, pick-up-and-play score-chasing things are, are fine for, like, a, yeah. a little handheld you might play on the bus. Yeah. But at the same time, then then to say, oh, no, we're going we're gonna to just do a full Zelda game. Uh, it, it just, yeah, yeah, incredible vision. Like, playing the 2020 remake shows that it did, you don't need to refresh the gameplay. It hasn't changed. It doesn't, it doesn't play any differently no. in the remake. And they didn't change the formula when they re-released it on the Game Boy Color about, what, five years after it was re- originally released. And even like Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons played exactly the same. And that was like 10 years later. Like you said, it's, it's, it's a towering achievement on, a, on, on the Game Boy. It really, really is. And uh, yeah. the, the, the only issue I have with it is that I have absolutely played it to death <laughs> yeah yeah I, I don't think there's a game that i've played more i think and uh, which means that even even though i had a really lovely time playing through the switch the new switch version i can i confess with that i did i was like it wasn't like i was bored but i was ju- i could do it in my sleep like <laughs> quite appropriately <laughs> And, and one of the only <laughs> Zelda games you've probably played, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> one of, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on, shall we, to my game. Jonathan. Great, let's hear it. Done. I'm glad you've set the tone as you have, Minty. Following on from a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about how Super Mario Maker was a pretty unclassifiable game in terms of like nailing its genre, my game this week is another absolute head-scratcher when it comes to genre pigeonholing. 
sort of a platform game, sort of a racing game, sort of a puzzle game, sort of an adventure game, sort of an arcade game, sort of a Cirque du Soleil simulator, <laughs> sort of in 3D, sort of in 2D. Like, I've really no idea what the game is, to be honest. And I played it yesterday to refresh my memory of it a little bit, and I'm still none the wiser. There's nothing really comparable to this game, apart from its easy-to-forget sequel. I always like to imagine how weird ideas are pitched in a boardroom, which they will have been at some point. Like, could you imagine someone in the boardroom of Compare the Market saying, uh, bear with me, but shall we have an entire advertising campaign based around the idea that if you say market in a Russian accent, it sounds like meerkat? <laughs> How did a room full of people go, yep, let's go with that as our best idea? I mean, fair play, it worked, it's ridiculous, uh, but, you know, it obviously, (laughs) they were obviously onto something. And I can imagine someone being sat in a boardroom at Sega in 1994 talking about this game saying... Right, so uh, you're this boy, or or she, uh, you could be a girl, uh, but you're asleep. And then your subconscious takes on the form of an androgynous spirit and you have to race around some crazy dream worlds collecting things and you need to get enough stuff and put it in a big (laughs) sphere before the the time runs out. Okay. uh, What? And then do you wake up? No, you do the same again, but, but slightly differently until like, then, I don't know, you go head-to-head with, like, an inflatable opera singer in a hybrid establishment of Pat Sharp's Funhouse and Noel Edmonds House Party, <laughs> but with elements of, of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. Uh, oh, and, and you can also perform aerial ballet to get more points. And, and then there's other nightmares, like a big fish and a flying snake. Oh, also, there's a whole artificial life that exists in the game with, with some some fairies... Okay, and what do they do? Well, you can breed them and use them to write music. And do you get a higher score for that? No? Great. Well, that sounds like you've got it all figured out. How about we pioneer a 3D analogue controller to release alongside the game? Yep, great. Let's crack on with this. This is rock-solid ideas. It's funny, Minty, that your game is set in a dream, because mine is as well. It is Nights into Dreams for the Sega Saturn. It's so good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm probably not going to talk much for the rest of the episode, because I'm just thinking about everything you've just said. (laughs) (laughs) So to try and describe it a bit more accurately, I'll, I'll give it a go. So you play as either Clarice or Elliot, and you have three sets of stages individual to them to choose from. And there's also like a, a joint final stage as well. And each of these stages is like a, a whimsical, fantastical, dreamlike environment, fully, fully realised in 3D, or, you know, as full as the Saturn could handle. It's funny, we've talked before about like the janky texture polygon warping <laughs> issue that like 32-bit consoles had, which yeah. absolutely worked in its favour for this game because it just added to the surreality of it. So once you enter a level, you then walk up to a little temple where your dream avatar, Knights, is uh, floating. And then a timer starts and you have to race around 
a, a basically a 2D plane, this like navigable course around the stage, and there'll be enemies you need to avoid, uh, rings you need to go through to increase your combo, score more points, and then there are little gems, which, are, which I think are called chips in this, which are fragments of a thing called an idea, spelled I-D-E-Y-A, and an idea represents part of the dreamer's consciousness, and you need to collect these chips in order to complete the course to basically put back an idea which and 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 complete the course once once you have have enough of these chips i think it was 20 then you deposit it into an orb to bank them and then you have until the timer runs out to collect more points and increase your score before returning to the palace and these these individual courses they always loop back around to the start and like once you've racked up enough of a score or the level timer is running too low then you yeah you have to get back to the temple finish your course and you start on the next one which will be then an alternate route around around the stage and then you rinse and repeat across four different courses to piece back the four chief ideas, the four chief parts of the dreamer's consciousness before you then are transported to the boss fight of the stage, which are nightmares. And all the nightmares have individual characteristics. You, you fight each of them totally differently. So like the, the boss of the first of, uh, I think it's Clarice's level, is Puffy the Opera Singer, who I alluded to in my intro to the game, who is just a b- bouncy ball bouncing around a house going, <laughs> and you need to grab onto Puffy with knights, uh, at which point you'll start rotating, and then you need to like time it to blast Puffy through breakable walls in the house until you blast them out of the, the house altogether to beat them. Or there's Gilwing, which is the giant snake, uh, which is the first boss of Elliot's levels, and you basically need to use knights to grab onto his head and like and blast him off. And every time you do that, his tail gets shorter and shorter and shorter until you defeat him but then there's a guy who throws like cards at you and you need to get rid of his cloak there's like a fish there's little fish surrounding a big fish and you need to get inside the little fish to shoot you across the stage to hit the big fish it's it's just it's so weird it's so weird and it's just the the sheer level of imagination that's in the design of everything is it, it, I mean, that's what I loved so much. Like, like you, Minty, I wanted more surreality in my world. And the game's made by Sonic Team, so it was coming from, like, real pedigree. And, you know, we've seen how incredible Sonic Team's designs are over the course of four Sonic games. I mean, just the design of the character of Knight itself is so enigmatic. Like, it's just really mysterious and beautiful and cool. And the levels themselves are just gorgeous environments. You've got Spring Valley, which is almost... This like alpine setting where you're drenched in the deep green of the grass and the bright blue of the skies and you've got windmills which are making air currents to that you can ride on there's the mystic forest which is this like dark mysterious woodland realm there's soft museum which i really love it's really nice and surreal that good music i was gonna say it has my personal favorite <laughs> piece of music from the game it's funny when I was, I was talking about the game with alex my brother last night and uh, one of the first things that came up was uh, this incredibly memorable pitch bend that happens in the Soft Museum soundtrack that is just inc- entirely wayward. It, it, I have no idea what the pitch bend is doing. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> it's got its own agenda. It's flying off on one. It's uh, but it's it's quite chaotic and joyous. There was 
also Splash Garden, which had some lovely like water effects. And even there was like this weird underwater section where Knights turns into a sort of dolphin type creature. And there was Frozen Bell, the mandatory ice level, which also incorporated a brief luge section <laughs> where Knights <laughs> turns into a luge. And then there was this like level called Stick Canyon, which is kind of like an electrical field mining quarry. And that had some cool mechanics in it as well. Like one bit where you turn into an electromagnet and you start absorbing everything that you fly through, which then really slows you down. But then you get to this, this like, I don't know, like a cleansing station and you bank in, like you cash in all the shit that you've, 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 uh, you've accumulated. You've catamaried up over that section. And it's, it's, I mean, it sounds like I'm making it all up. And obviously somebody was at some point, but it's, it's such, it's so bizarre. And also these levels were populated with a lot of life as well. Like they felt like they were these living, breathing environments. Like you had the different enemies floating about, which were really weird and had very interesting designs. And something I touched upon earlier as well, there were these little fairies called Nightopians. And they lived in this dream world and you could do like a little power loop around them to capture them. And then the game kept track of your interactions with all of these guys. And like in the like in the main menu, you, you could go and keep track of their moods and like their <laughs> mood would change if you hurt them. And you could also breed them with like other Nightopians and you could also breed them with some of the enemies to create new creatures. And this all fed into like this music creation mode. I have absolutely no idea why it was in there how it worked or what i was meant to do with it but it was great because it was just like i I just i just don't understand it but apparently it was like a direct precursor to what sonic team then made with like the the ko system in sonic adventure yeah which i think it does have that so yeah so it had, had some purpose i guess apart from just being just I don't know, just there. Like I briefly mentioned the music when talking about Soft Museum, and it's worth stating again just how fantastic the music in the game is. Like all the different levels had amazing music, and there was even a theme song for the game that was this really sweet little song that I just I just loved as a kid. It's gorgeous, and there was also some really avant-garde stuff in there as well. Like especially in the boss fights, some like hard jazz fusion with like roaring electronica, like. I remember, like, specifically the saxophone that is just goes, again, just absolutely goes off on one in the boss fights. It's just incredible. Really surreal, bizarre. I mean, just totally brilliant. I was reading up about the game last night as well, and there's there's a, oh, there's a lot in terms of, like, the deeper lore of the game that isn't really explained. And it's part of what makes it so so great and so intriguing is the fact that there is just so much weird stuff that you know has actually been been designed because like every element you know has like a deeper meaning and represents something like more abstract and it's still like such a weird trip like and it doesn't make any more sense to me like 25 years on like apparently like the character of knights is reflective of carl jung's analytical shadow theory (laughs) then like the two main human characters, Clarence and Elliot, are inspired by the animus and anima concepts. It's, I mean, it's just, it's a very singular artistic vision. Like, I, I love the fact that you know that the people behind it know what everything means. But, you know, there's a reason why it became such a cult classic. 
there's nothing else like it. Like, this game was doing so many new things that just weren't seen in video games before. Apparently, like, the development of the game was, like, really troubled because there weren't any existing games to use as a reference and they just had to start building the game from scratch several times because there were just no touchstones for this sort of thing. And not only was Sega breaking new ground with the game itself, but they also developed and released a 3D analogue controller alongside the game, which would give you a much more fluid level of control over flying. And and it really did make a huge difference in terms of yeah. that. Like, I loved the controller. I mean, it's really bulky and, and cumbersome. And it, I mean, it looks exactly like basically what the Dreamcast controller ended up looking like. It was very, very similar. But it felt very natural to use, and I ended up using it to control quite a lot of other games as well. One of the great things is that this game did get revisited and remastered for PlayStation Network and Xbox Arcade. And I've got the remastered version on on Steam, which is what I played last night. And it, it does hold up really, really well. Like, it's, it's mad that such a niche game actually has probably the most longevity of any Saturn exclusive games. Yeah. But it, it, it's great that there is that version to play. Like you were saying earlier, with, with graphics holding up, like the style of Knights, and not just in the way it looks, but in the way that it plays, because there is nothing else like it, it does hold up. And it, I mean, yeah, it, it feels as magical to play now as it did then. And I don't think that will ever change. It's something we touched on before about games we had when we were younger. We really invested in them, even if there wasn't a huge amount of content. Like Chris, you mentioned this was Sega Rally with its three yeah. tracks and two cars. And yet you found longevity in beating your high scores over and over and over. And I got loads of replay value out of nights by constantly trying to better my scores, achieve the highest rankings on all of the levels. And, and, and this is where like the arcade nature of the game really shone because you realise that everything is against the clock. If you hit an enemy, you don't lose health, you lose five seconds. And if you don't make it back to this palace at the start of the level before the timer runs out, you turn back into Clarice or Elliot and you need to make it back on foot and you lose all your chips. They scatter everywhere, exactly like how Sonic loses his rings. And then you've got this terrifying alarm clock egg thing chasing you <laughs> um, to try and you've got to get back to the palace before it catches up with you so uh, you really don't want to end up in that situation no, nothing's worse than an alarm clock egg one of the most like chilling things is when you've got about 10 seconds left before this happens just this incredibly discordant sound just fades in through this beautiful dreamy music and it gets so tense and all of a sudden like like the, the feeling you get when it's like 20 seconds left and you think if I just boost I reckon I can get another lap and just pick up a few more chips and just get a bit of a higher score but then this music's fading in and you think I'm not going to make it I'm not going to make it when you like make it back in time and that extra lap meant that you got like an A ranking holy shit you feel like a king oh it's so good (laughs) it's so good I mean it it says a lot that I got the amount of playtime I did out of Christmas Nights, which was this special release we spoke about, I think, way back when in our Christmas special, like yeah, we did. very really early on in the podcast. And it was basically it was just one level that you that changed depending on the, the the day of the year that you were playing it on. And so if you played it on Christmas Day, it was all Christmas themed. It also had like Halloween theme and Valentine's Day theme and, and just, just the level generally just changed and with the seasons it was it was gorgeous. But it was just one level. But I happily played that over and over and over again, trying to find all the secrets, unlock all of the presents that you could in that, you know, and and just keep on trying to better my score and better my score. And so with 
the full game are spoiled for choice with like six more levels to lose myself in. Just wonderful. Just wonderful. I mentioned briefly at the top, there was a sequel released for the Wii. It was really a letdown. And, And I don't know why. I think one of the problems is it did kind of seek to define the game a bit more by adding in more of an overt story. Like, it reminded me a bit of what Sega did with Super Monkey Ball 2 by, like, just trying to crowbar in a story into a game that doesn't need one. Dr. Bad Boon. Yeah, Dr. Bad Boon. (laughs) Monkey Ball doesn't... You don't need a reason to be going around those levels. And, like, the original did have a simple story to it about how Clarice and Elliot want to achieve their dreams in real life and have to battle their own insecurities in their subconscious. But it's all told entirely wordlessly. And it's much more powerful for it. You know, you don't need a fucking expositional owl flying in and spelling it out for you. It would just, it totally dampened the mood. And because the sequel was a Wii game, obviously it relied very heavily on motion controls, which could have been a really good fit for the game because of its like freeform balletic movement. But it just didn't work. Like certainly not with the very, very basic motion controls that the Wii, you know, initially came with. But I, I know that the, the director, Takashi Azuka showed interest in making a third night's game but that was like 10 years ago now. I mean, I'm sure like ideas are, be- are still floating around and it'll probably go across the boardroom table every couple of years. And I do reckon there could be something absolutely incredible done in VR using motion controls, like Ooh, almost yeah. like you're conducting an orchestra to control it. And, you know, I, I th- hopefully some sort of inspiration falls on Sega to do something wonderful with the concept again. But then having said that, no matter how many times I play the game, it still feels like a fulfilling experience. And, you know, just playing through the game, it only took me a couple of hours to play through it. Just to play through it was was fulfilling enough. It's just wonderful. And I probably haven't even scratched the surface of the game, to be honest. It's, it's a game that absolutely needs to be played to understand what's so special about it. And, and it really is a very, very special game. And yeah, I love it. And it's got a very, very special place in my heart. It's a good one. I mean, if you had a Saturn, you probably played Knights growing up. Mm. I mean, I, I remember getting um, an issue of Computer and Video Games magazine when I was a kid. And on the cover, it had Mario 64, it had Knights, and it had Quake 2. And it said, like, these are three games that are going to blow your mind. Mm. And as a kid, all three looked like I, I can't fathom how any of these things can even work. <laughs> yeah. But out of all of them, to look back now... Anyone today could look at Mario 64 and be like, oh, well, it's a 3D platformer, isn't it? We've had loads of those. And yeah. you could look at Quake and go, oh, it's a, it's a 3D first-person shooter. That's like 10 a penny these days. But no one, I don't think, if you didn't play it at the time, could look at Knights and be like, oh, it's a... It, uh, it's a exactly. It, it's, a, it's a flying thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most unique out of the trio and easily one of the most special games ever yeah yeah really really is have you ever seen anything of it minty as a non-saturn owner no nothing at all i feel like there was like a mini game of it on the sony iToy. yes there was yeah and i guess because it was a mini game it was shit fairly stripped back (laughs) yes fairly shit Um, (laughs) well just be thankful that you didn't play night 2d which was a game that i made on the games factory uh which which i'm still pretty proud of (laughs) it was great we did what I wanted. Well, yeah, at some point, Minty, I'll have to find a way of introducing it to you um, and you can you can uh, see what you think of it. Yeah. I think you were saying to me on uh, a message earlier, Chris, like um, or yesterday, about it's amazing to watch somebody play 
VR for the first time. Like it's yeah. amazing just to sort of see how their brain handles it. And I think the same will be true of playing Knights. <laughs> I'd be very, yeah. very interested to see see your reaction to it. Mm. Yeah, I'll have to do that. For now though, lastly, we have Chris Dow with your thirtieth favourite video game. We do. And I mean after having both of you describe tales of like dreams and whimsy, my story here starts about as boring and humdrum as you can. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want to go right back to to when I was finishing school, like secondary school. And my my route through sort of post-18 education was was a little bit messy. Like I, I finished my A-levels at school. I then had a total panic about going to university. And when everyone else was kind of just applying and, and disappearing, I, I decided I was going to just stay local and do a foundation year at a local art college. Then at the end of that year, again, everyone was ready to go off and go to university. And instead, I, I just... I didn't want to do it. it. It took a long time to get the oomph to, to want to do higher education properly. So I just kind of bummed around for a year, had my fingers crossed that my music career was going to take off enough to make, you know, education unnecessary, really. <laughs> and I mean, my eventual degree and now teaching qualification, and everything else obviously show that my life didn't quite pan out how I imagined at 19, for better or worse. And despite kind of having moderate success with music, like I have photos of me somewhere holding uh, a copy of my band cd at the time in hmv in oxford street and there's issues of old like kerrang and rock sound with my face in them looking like an idiot at (laughs) at that age it was more like a year of transition and during that time before i went to uni this just kind of like dead year i'd be playing gigs as often as possible and then in between those I'd, i'd just work shitty temp jobs so i did basic admin work i did factory work i i did a few weeks like as a pot wash at a cafe I was a cleaner at Weatherspoons for months. Oh my. One job I had, I did uh, public surveys about taxi usage in Margate. Jesus. At least 75% of those forms I just made up in, in my bedroom to save walking into town. <laughs> so who knows how good that research was for the company that uh, commissioned it. But the only job I really enjoyed in this time, uh, like actually was actually fulfilled by, I was a driver's mate for a furniture delivery company. And weirdly like every day i had loads of fun like we'd we'd load up the van in the morning with sofas and tables and chairs and sideboards and wardrobes and whatever drive to each customer's house and then it was like a spatial puzzle like you had to look at it and say okay how are we going to get this item in there so sometimes it would be like okay we're gonna have to take the door off we're gonna have to just take the whole front door off and then sometimes we go no no maybe we can rotate the cap the couch like through the bay window if we open that or other times we go, okay, actually, we're going to have to take this seat basically entirely apart so we can get it up a spiral staircase and, and walk it up that way. And every day was different. And I, I have this vivid memory of, of one morning being called into work on a Saturday, which they never normally did deliveries on, as one customer had basically bought like two vans worth of furniture to basically kit out an entire house. So we drove there. The job probably took like four or five hours to finish, like a long, long job. And as we like were finally like loading up our van with all this their discarded stuff they didn't want anymore, the the owner of the house came out and gave both me and the driver a fifty pound tip. Amazing. And like on top of the forty or so quid I'd made for the shift, I I felt richer than I'd ever been in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sitting on almost a hundred pounds in my pocket, and I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? And I just walked into Margate and bought an Xbox 360. Amazing. And that was then how I helped while away the hours of like the remainder of this dead year. Now, this story is not totally irrelevant because <laughs> today's game is an Xbox 360 game, uh, an Xbox 360 exclusive. And, and it's also a game about spatial puzzles. And this is something that won't be immediately apparent, but will definitely come back in a little bit. So you just have to kind of hold your horses a bit. <laughs> 
It's the original Crackdown on the 360. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. So, little history lesson about, about Crackdown. It was developed by a team called Real Time Worlds, and that team was tangentially connected to Rockstar because the lead, David Jones, was who founded DMA Design, which was what Rockstar was before they changed their name. And he was also the creator of GTA and Lemmings, amongst other things. Ah. Now, Crackdown was essentially an effort to take some of the framework of like the original open world of GTA, like the top-down versions, but use the power of this new console generation, because the 360 was still in its infancy, really, to, to really deliver on the 3D sandbox approach that GTA 3 had pioneered. So Saints Row was actually the first game that I bought alongside my 360, the original Saints Row. But aside from looking a bit shinier than GTA was on the PS2, it didn't do anything new. There was nothing in Saints Row that went, oh, this is why I needed a 360. Whereas Crackdown, just a few months after this, was the first time I felt game design had stepped up like beyond visuals. It was doing things that seemed different. In Crackdown, you play as a member of the Agency which is a group comprised of uh, like genetically modified super soldiers. And they're attempting to wipe out three warring gangs across Pacific City, which is the, the setting of the game. And you do this pretty much single-handedly by approaching each gang's territory in a totally non-linear fashion. So best practice might suggest that you're going to work through like the, the underling leaders of, of the gang to weaken the defences of the kingpin, take them out, and then the whole area is yours. But then again, because of the game and how it's structured, there's nothing to stop you saying, okay, I'm just going to swim out to sea, come all the way around the back of the entire island, go straight to the Kingpin's lair from a little entrance that I found off the shoreline, and then just find my way in his kind of throne room and just have a big battle there, ignoring everything else. Like, it might not work. You might just get killed straight away. But it always felt possible. And, and I think Crackdown's one of those games where you really could approach it in your own way. Like, we talked about narrative games like The Last of Us at the beginning of this episode, this is the polar opposite. The, the storyline is, this is roughly what you're supposed to do and the approach you take is entirely down to you. That in itself was compelling enough for me when, when I had my console. Like it was a game of, of planning and, and territorial advance, but also it was just a game about blowing shit up and, and having fun in the same way that GTA had been as well. Most notably, I remember you could play the entire campaign in co-op, either like in person with someone or, or over Xbox Live. And it was a great laugh. Like it never got old climbing to the top of a tall building with someone else, talking through your plan that you were going to burst into this hideout. This is where you were going to approach from. And then just at the moment of execution, you just boot the other player off the roof into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> I did that oh, 50 times with my brother. <laughs> How many controllers did you go through? <laughs> I think he was, he was quite level. I'm sure he got pissed off, but he was reasonably level. <laughs> like that's all great. But but the reason I, I truly love Crackdown so much is because of its environment and by extension, its environmental puzzles. Now I mentioned like this idea of spatial puzzles and, and how that links to this idea of Crackdown. And it's because that all of your skills in Crackdown can be improved organically. So if you shoot people, your firearm skill goes up. If you drive well, your driving skill goes up. But more interesting to me, at least, you could also collect these things called agility orbs. And there were a ludicrous 500 of them placed around the city. And by collecting any of those, your movement and jumping skill would go up. So early on, you'll, you'll see these little orbs like at eye level or maybe on top of a little ledge that you can reach just by like a, a big jump. And if you just go for the ones you can see like that, you'll, you'll probably maybe pick up 10% of the game's bounty through playing it that way. But proper completion of this collection, like if you're really going for all 500, you've got a plan, 
You've got to use sort of like gravity-defying parkour as your agent gets stronger and can jump further. And like I said, this throwback, you, you have to use spatial awareness. It's a puzzle of how you're going to get to these places. In the same way, like when you talked about uh, Tony Hawk a few weeks ago, Jonathan, yeah, you said sometimes you need to almost like stand in place and, and work out the line of objects you're, you're going to take or, or skate on to get to like a hidden tape or something like that. Crackdown has you standing similar and sort of wheeling the camera around thinking, okay, if I, if I can jump on top of that sign... I can probably then hang on a ledge from that water tower that's adjacent. And then maybe if I use a running jump from there, I could get to a balcony where there's these fire stairs and that'll get me the roof. That, that'll get me up to these, these two orbs I can see. And, and that idea of just working things out is just a real joy. And, and the whole game had this sense of height that, that GTA never had on the PS2. It just, it just couldn't conjure it. So to have this extra power, they really invested in this idea of the verticality of the city. A GTA 3 that I've said on this list before, I, I do really like it sets something in motion with its hundred hidden packages that for better or worse would define like every 3d game going forwards. So they'd always have something to collect. Sometimes it'd be fun and it would just like, you know, extend your playtime a little bit. Other times trying to locate hidden collectibles is just a miserable experience. <laughs> but in, in crackdown though, because it was non-linear, this part of the game could be as big or as little as you wanted it to be. So you could finish the entire campaign if you maybe collected 50, 60, 70 orbs out of the 500. That would probably be enough agility to, to get you to all the places you need to get to. But the option was always there that if you wanted to grind out all 500, then you'd have this ability to leap three or four stories in a single jump. And then you could choose and say, okay, well, I'm going to take out this kingpin by basically just leaping up from street level to his base that's up in the sky and fire one single <laughs> rocket. It's like you, you really could approach it however you wanted to. Now, for years and years, I tried to collect all 500 orbs. It was like one of those missions I I picked up every now and again. And part of this when I got the console was because I was driven by it being tied to an achievement. And I thought, you know, I I could do that. That's a rare achievement. I'll look great having that. (laughs) But over time, it it became less about that and was more about just accomplishing a goal that had been in the back of my mind for all this time. And up until semi-recently, like a few years ago, I'd, I'd beaten the game's campaign like two or three times but I'd never managed to find every orb. I always had some sticking point that meant I couldn't find the last ones. Mm. So a couple summers back, Tom, my brother, used to pop up to where I was living at the time and we'd just sort of like play games and things in the daytime. And we decided one one week that it was going to be our mission to just get through Crackdown and get these 500 orbs to finally sort of tick off this, this thing off our list. And this time I planned properly. Like I had my laptop on, on my knee. I had Photoshop open with a map of the whole island. And basically as we went through it, I, I was the cartographer. <laughs> Tom was the one holding the controller. And I'd sort of be directing him where to go and then marking off every orb we found on the map so we wouldn't double back on ourselves. And we traveled across the whole map like over two or three sessions. Probably took us 15 hours, like doing it road by road and block by block. But when we finally got the last one, the 500th orb, it was like it was a mammoth task, but it was one that had defined so much of the 360 generation for me in the back of my mind mm. that I just felt like elated to get it done. It, it was just such a great feeling. It's it's a wonderful game, it really is, and it holds up really well. Like we've talked again a couple times today about aesthetics. It was never going for realism, and its sequels like two and three offered nothing on top of what the original did. Like there's there's no point in playing them. The original can be bought for peanuts. If you've got 360, you can play it and it's great. It plays on the Xbox One. It's backwards compatible. Uh, if you have a One X, it even renders at 4K. So it looks like ridiculously sharp. Oh, wow. Just just try and play it. Like it's really, really good. 
And it's essentially, it's an open world GTA derivative game that manages to be so much more by way of it foregrounding things like, like I've said, like the city's verticality and, and by respecting the player's ability to just carve their own path through its loose story. When they did, like, do you remember the, the PS5 proper announcement a few weeks back? Yeah. GTA 5 has now been announced as a PS5 launch window title. Yeah. Which unbelievably means this game has now been released across three console generations. And, and yet for, for all the good that game might do with its online, like GTA online mode or whatever, the single player game is far more prescriptive than Crackdown. Yeah. <laughs> Crackdown feels far more like a next generation effort to just say, it's up to you as the player than, you know, like a scripted Hollywood story. Like more games should say, do what you want. I, I just want more games to say, just get on with it, do what you want. And, and to be honest, more games should also give you the option to gradually climb to the top of a massive skyscraper and then leap off to land in a tiny swimming pool. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a fantastic game and everyone should should buy a copy and play it. That's high praise indeed. It's a series that entirely passed me by because I didn't have an Xbox. Yeah. And the only thing I know of it is the really mediocre reviews that Crackdown 3 got. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's not a game that I, I expected to appear on this podcast. <laughs> so there we go. So there we have it. Another three games from us. First of all, we had... Mm, Link's Awakening. And then we had Nights into Dreams before finally... Crackdown. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media, tell your friends about it, and please do engage with us on social media as well. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash our three cents. Feel free to chat to us on there about these games, about games that you're playing, or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am also there at Chaz underscore Hodges. I am Clement underscore Boo. Please do check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to that, and please do share share that on social media as well we've got some great video content there already and we've got loads more great stuff in the pipeline as well and if you're really enjoying what we're doing please do check out our patreon page patreon.com forward slash our three cents pledge a few pennies and see what you can get for that buck (laughs) and please do join us next week for our 29th favorite video games of all time into the 20s goodbye Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackie and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network.